You're listening to Trek FM. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Andy, and thanks for tuning in. I am joined today by Sue. Hi, everybody. We are here to talk a little bit about Dragon Con. We had a ludicrous amounts of fun at Dragon Con, including some cosplay, which yeah, Sue did. is apparently an expert in. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, did you or did you not get a picture with the Seventh Doctor while Kaz playing the Seventh Doctor? Well, yes, but that doesn't make me an expert. That makes you an expert. That is a cosplay <laughs> win. Uh, yeah, so Sue got to do that. That was pretty cool. Um, I dressed up like Oliver Queen. That was pretty cool. Carried a bow around uh, for a full day. Got my uh, arrows uh, in someone's face in the elevator at almost, you know... Hit somebody right in the eye. Oh, no. Oops. I didn't hear about that. <laughs> yeah, we actually had a lot of fun in the elevators at Dragon Con. Wow, that sounds dirtier than it is. The elevators are strange and filled with interesting, cool like, people that you would never meet normally, and it's a fun place. <laughs> Stop laughing at you, Sue. <laughs> I'm trying right now. Oh, I love it. We were on a lot of panels. You were on a ludicrous amount of panels, Sue. How many were you on? I was, if you count the parade as a panel, which I'm not sure you can, um, but it's like an event that I was committed to, I was on 13. And the parade, fun fact, was uh, grand marshaled by Nichelle Nichols. Mm-hmm. So you paraded with Nichelle Nichols. I did, but I paraded next to Carol Spinney, who is the puppeteer behind Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch for the last, you know, 45 years. Let me just tell you that when Sue was ready to go out and do this, she was like giggly fangirl and it was adorable because apparently Sue loves puppets. Fun I do. Fun fact. I do love puppets. <laughs> and I was on a fair amount myself. I was on seven panels. I want to say seven? Seven. Your first year you were on seven panels. That's what's ludicrous. Okay, we can we can debate all day who is more ludicrous. Um, <laughs> but I had fun on my panels. Uh, I got to talk about, you know, Black Widow and Game of Thrones. It was a good time. One of my favorite things that we did, though, is we got to see Melinda Sondgrass do a reading from one of her sci-fi novels. And then she was gracious enough to let us ask her questions and answer them. So the following audio is from the Q&A after her reading. There are some questions about Star Trek. There are some questions about her books. And I think some writing questions in general, yeah? Yeah, she was... Let's just, let's just say something real quick. The snod is awesome. And I'll talk about movies or television or Star Trek. It doesn't all have to be about books. <laughs> was your music background the thing that influenced you for how Richard Friedkin is? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um... I, uh, I I was a singer. I, I was a inf- an inferior uh, pianist, 
but I was an opera singer. I went to school in Vienna for a year and a half when I was younger um, and realized that I wasn't good enough to make it on the grand opera stage. Um, not exactly built for it, you know, you need more chest, <laughs> and I didn't have it. So I um, came back and went to law school and did that other stuff. But music is still just so important to me. My father was a very fine musician. He played five instruments and sang. He had a jazz band in the 20s, you know. He was a very old, much older man when he married my mom. And, um, and music is just important to me. So, uh, and I've always known Richard as a singer. He's also a very fine pianist. And so, um, and, and it's, it, this is where writers groups are so incredibly useful because in book two, um, I needed him to stop a horde of old ones and crazed people. And I was going to have him sing, and I was thinking, oh, God. And I knew what George had gone through with the Armageddon Rag, trying to get music rights, because it's really hard and expensive. And so I was kind of going, well, what do I use? And if I use something classical? And then, you know, I said that when Kentness enters, Kentness is my alien who's created this weapon as an ancient creature, um, who's kind of off stage. I'll explain that in a minute. And uh, whenever he enters a room where there's a musical instrument, it, it, it shimmers and there's a musical chord, you know, this sort of declination of sound that happens. And one of the people in the writer's group had this genius idea and says, why doesn't he sing that? Why doesn't he sing the chords that, that Richard uses, um, or that, that Kentness pulls from musical instruments? And I went, ah, genius, <laughs> you know, it's genius. Um, and the reason I took my mentor, I mean, he's kind of, Kentness is, he's Loki, he's Prometheus, he's Lucifer, he's, you know, he's, he's the force of kind of knowledge, the ur-rationality, or ur-rational creature. And I had to get him off stage because, again, um, Daniel Abraham is part of the, he's the other part of James S.A. Corey, uh, who wrote The Expanse. Daniel is a very fine writer. And Daniel said to me, Obi-Wan Kenobi has to die because if he doesn't, you've infantilized your hero. If there's always, you know, somebody who has all this power and wisdom and knowledge, then your hero is either going, what do you want me to do next? or they look like idiots if they, if they don't go to the honcho and say, hey, you know, can you help me out here? Um, I mean, that was actually one of, I love the Harry Potter, I mean, I love the world she created, but there were these moments when I just wanted to say, just go tell Dumbledore. <laughs> I mean, why are you not going and telling Dumbledore? But, you know, and that's always the problem you've got with these. Um, so, and then of course it came out why he, even if he'd gone and told Dumbledore, Dumbledore, why would have let him get in trouble because he was supposed to die anyway, which I thought was so evil and wonderful. So that's, um, so is Kentness going to get better? They said they may, may not. <laughs> well, that's book four. Um, I, uh, it actually came out of a conversation I had with um, someone I can't say by name <laughs> because I, you know, but um, who's extremely concerned about AI. And I suddenly got this idea for the subplot. I know what I want, I know what's going on in book four. And so, uh, yeah. what I didn't know is, was this just a trilogy when I started the third one? Well, the, is this the end or is there going to be more? Well, it wraps, I think it wraps up satisfactorily if Tor doesn't. But the nice thing is my new publisher, Titan, in Britain, they've also bought these books. And they've come out in Britain as well. So there's a British edition uh, of these books with really pretty covers with swords and cities and religious items wrapped around the hilts of the swords. And I have a feeling if Tor doesn't do another one, I think Titan very well might. 
um, and it's Titan who's doing my space opera series. That, that I'm, I, book one is delivered, I'm waiting for notes, um, and uh, I'm halfway through book two, and, and at, at this point I'm going, wow, book five looks a long way away. But, uh, and what I've done vis-a-vis -vis Hollywood is I actually wrote a spec TV pilot based on these books, starting with book one. Um, and then I'm doing, you kind of need two new samples. And so, um, and everything's TV now. I mean, it used to be write something for a show that's already on the air, but that's not how it works anymore. They want something original. It's all you, either a movie or a TV pilot. And uh, after having spent some time doing movies with, um, on wild cards at Universal, I, I would rather go back to television. Um, movies are just, it's, it's agony. I mean, this is the golden age of television. Television is a writer's medium, and movies are, frankly, pretty crappy <laughs> right now. So, um, so I'm also turning the, I'm, I just started on the airplane. I started uh, writing the TV pilot, spec pilot, based on the space opera. So I'll have a space opera, and I'll have this kind of urban fantasy thriller, contemporary thriller thingy. You know, I don't know if they'll ever sell, but hopefully they'll get me a job. <laughs> you know, somebody will read them and go, oh, she's a good writer. Yeah, okay. So, Is there a show on the air right now that you would love to write for if oh, you got God, a chance? Oh, so many. Well, right off the bat, per Person of Interest, mm -hmm. which is my favorite show, period. I think it's the best show on television. Sorry, George. Um, <laughs> but I do. I think Person of Unfortunately, I've heard rumors this is its final season, and I'm just heartbroken because I... I think it's stunning. Um, I would love to write for that show. Um, I would very much like to, um, why am I blanking? I'd love to write for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, I, I, you know, the first season was pretty rough, but I, it was like, it was Coulson. I loved Coulson. I had to keep watching. <laughs> so I'd love to watch, write for that show as well. Is it the characters that yeah. you want to write, write yeah, for them? Yeah, and the, and the universe. I think Marvel's done a really, you know, like Harry Potter, even though there are so many inconsistencies that, you know, I know a lot of science fiction writers are, well, I don't know why she's so popular, because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and, you know, but she created a world that you like, and I think the Marvel multi, the big universe thing they've done is very appealing to me. And so, um, and I like the characters. Um, <coughs> Arrow, oh, Arrow is... I, and the irony is that, I, if any of you are on my Facebook page, I was on the airplane sitting. I ended up trading seats with John Barrowman <laughs> because, you know, I got okay. on. And, and I kept thinking, I, you know, I saw these two quite handsome men, and I thought, I, they're, okay, I, there's something familiar, but I'm not good about spotting actors in the wild. I don't know why. And uh, we get on the plane, and I'm going to get my seat, and he's there, and he says, would you would you like this window seat that's mine? And I went, well, sure, okay. And then he talked to the, because he and his husband had been separated. And then he talked to the guy who was seated next to his husband. He moved back by me, and then I realized who it was. So I actually, we had a conversation, because I'd met him briefly at Comic-Con at an EW party a few years ago. So I said, you won't remember it was noisy and dark and all this other stuff, and <laughs> we were all drunk. But <laughs> there's way too much alcohol. But I said, I did meet you, and I just wanted to say hello and say how much I enjoy your work in Arrow. So we had a, you know, but I love Arrow because it's like grand opera. It's just so ludicrous. I mean, really, when you stop and think about it, it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? What, we're going to go to the elite? And, and I was saying to, to um, 
I'll call him John because, but uh, I said, you know, I would love to write for the show because I, I want to pose the question, why does League of Assassins not buy generators? I mean, it's <laughs> the 21st century. It's like, you know, they've got fire pits and, and I was like, you never heard of a generator? Um, and he said, he started laughing. He said, oh God, I wish you could. He said, it's so hot in those scenes because they have to turn off the air conditioning. And then those costumes they're wearing there, you know, and then there's fire everywhere. So, um, <laughs> but I like that show as well. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not highbrow. What can I say? I like these shows, you know. I, um, what are some other, oh, Netflix, uh, the new uh, uh, Daredevil is fantastic. I downloaded that. Um, and uh, yeah, I watch mostly genre stuff because I love genre stuff. Was there a particular character for Star Trek you really liked writing for? Data was the most, well, obviously. <clears throat> I mean, there's a certain irony associated with that in that, you know, it's it's sort of sad when the robot is the most interesting character <laughs> on the show. Um, I really liked writing for him. I, I had a trilogy in mind that I never got to write. I mean, if any of you have seen Bill Shatner's documentary, you know that, and, and if you've heard the, you know, interviews on the new releases. It was a troubled show. I mean, it was a tough show, and there were a lot of problems. Um, and I wanted to write a trilogy about Data, with Measure of a Man being the first one, and the Ensigns of Command, which, by the way, I'm not responsible for. My script got rewritten. If you want to read my version of the script, it's on my website. I'm writing. <laughs> there is my script, um, which is much better than what they shot. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, and then, you know, instance of command was, measure was, is he a person or is he property? And then instance was going to be, data learns that there's something ephemeral about leadership and that charisma is something that's very hard to quantify and he has to figure that out. And then I wanted to write, um, I wanted to write an episode where data has to premeditate and commit a murder. And how can he, could he do that and what does that do? to him. I never got to write that episode. So um, I, I also enjoyed writing for Jonathan. I, I always felt like um, I, I thought that Riker got really shortchanged um, and there could have been much more interesting things. He was actually, he's actually a very good actor. Um, you just, you know, he never really had a chance to, except in measure. I thought he did a really good job in my script measure of a man. I thought he really turned in a performance. Um, and, and Michael Dorn was sweet, but, you know, I mean, Dorn, Worf was kind of a one-note character. I mean, that was what made Data interesting because he had levels. You know, you could, yes, he was supposed to be unemotional, but he had levels. So that was, that was why I did that. <laughs> Anything else? I'm did you get much negative feedback when you killed Angela? I didn't, actually. Really? I was so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've learned that the feet of the master, okay? Yeah, I'm I know. George. That's true. <laughs> um, but I was waiting for more development. I like the, the backstory of the cat character. And yeah, the no, I, and, I need, you know, it was just, it, it, it sort of felt right. I mean, I've, I've done that. I do an urban fantasy series under a pseudonym, Philippa Bornakova, and um, they're about a young woman lawyer working in a vampire law firm. And, uh, and <laughs> she's having heart palpitations. <laughs> Why? <very> excited. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That's okay. <laughs> there, I have, I have a three book contract. Books one and two are out. The first one is called This Case Is Going to Kill Me, and the second one is called uh, Box Office Poison. 
And then the third one I had delivered in February last year, <laughs> and I still don't have my editorial notes. So I don't know. But in that one, I, I, I had somebody needed to die, and I killed somebody that I think, assuming I have any fans left by the time it comes out, <laughs> uh, because it's been so long. Um, I, that one I think they will kill me for. But uh, it just it, it needed to be that way. I mean, sometimes you just um, have to do that. <coughs> But Richard's finally going to, you know, things are going to start to work out for the man. <laughs> well, now that I know what you've got in mind from us. <laughs> so, my little mosey. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, there needs to be some stakes. Um, if Now, on the other hand, I'm the huge proponent of the happy ending. I mean, I, um, I, I can go on a rant about Mass Effect 3 at the drop of a hat. Any game, any any video gamers in this crowd other than me? Yeah, I um, I got to the end of Mass Effect 3 and I started screaming abuse at my television because it was a terrible ending. I mean, it was just, you know, I mean, it violated so many writing rules. And I was like, <laughs> turned out it was written by producers who weren't actually writers. Um, <laughs> but it was like, um, but on the other hand, I do think that you know, the world is hard enough. If you're reading for entertainment or watching something for entertainment, I mean, I don't mind bittersweet, but I, I want a, some kind of a win. I mean, you know, I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that, I think people think that dark is important. And I think that's, a, you know, a, a dumb place to go. I don't think that's what entertainment should do. I think, you know, it should uplift us and touch us emotionally and maybe inspire us, you know, if we're lucky. But I don't know why it has to be a bummer, you know. Yes, occasionally, but, you know, even Shakespeare. If you look at King Lear, um, yes, uh, Cordelia and Lear die, but there is a happiness to it in that they are, they are resolved. They are, they are once more united at the end, and, and he's realized that, that his child loves him, and, and she knows that she's been forgiven and loved by her father, even though they're both going to die. But there is sort of a happy ending, you know. Um, so I think that's important, you know, for for writing. I stunned you all <laughs> the silence. I'm just trying to think of more questions. <laughs> and I'll talk about Star Trek. I'm happy to. I was going to say, I think that's why I keep going back to Star Trek more and more because everything right now is is all grimdark everything that's that's happening on TV and in the movies it's all so heavy and dark and so much of Star Trek disregarding the reboot is is all about optimism being important yeah and that's so much of why I love it yeah I think that was you know for me too um there was, I, you know, I grew up on original Trek when I was a little kid, and, and that was like my dream. I mean, here were spaceships, and there were people, and there were women in positions of authority. Later, I realized she was just a telephone operator, but okay, you know, at least she was on the bridge, and she got to be in a uniform. And, and so that was, um, there was something just, and, and I've, been, I've been really lucky. I, I got to have a meeting with Leonard Nimoy about a project, and... Uh, and then I did the, uh, I was interviewed by Bill Shatner for this documentary that he did, who, by the way, he is a really smart guy. Don't be fooled. Um, I mean, he is a super smart guy. He put me to the ringer. I don't know how, I haven't had the nerve to watch, he gave, I've got a copy of the documentary, but I haven't had the nerve to look at it yet because I hate to watch myself on film. But, um, 
you know, I'm so used to being interviewed. I mean, you can roll me out of bed at four in the morning and I'll give you a sound bite. You know, I'm like, whatever. And I expected that from him. And he, follow-up question, follow-up question, just pushing me, pushing me. And I told him after it was all over, I said, Bill, you should be doing the presidential debates because <laughs> these guys would get away with nothing <laughs> no, if you were doing it. And we also have it in common. He's, uh, I adore, I love horses and, and have a horse. And he has horses and loves horses. And, you know, he's 80 years old and he rides championship reining classes, which in reining is rough. I mean, you know, that's spins and sliding stops. And, you know, he's out there and he said, I have the top champion reining horse in the United States. <laughs> I ride him myself. And I'm like, go you. <laughs> You're an inspiration. I hope I can do that when I'm 80. You know? <laughs> so, uh I, I digress, I lost my train of thought. But I, I think that, you know, there was, meeting him was a joy. Cause I, in some ways, I loved Old Trek more than Next Generation. I think because the people, I, I had a better sense that they cared for each other. And Next Generation, it was, always felt like we were trying to force, you know, some kind of emotional, and, and that was, you know, it was, it was a tough show. And we had bosses who didn't get it, didn't like it, didn't love it in the way we all did. I mean, I remember Rick Berman going on and on about, no, I'm Vulcans and these stupid people with antennas. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, like, well, then why are you running this show? Yeah, right? you know, if you hate it this much, why are you running it? It does feel like TNG didn't really gel until like season four. Yeah. It like, took a really long time with that cast. Well, it just, you know, and I, I, I think because, you know, the humor went, first the humor went, and then any kind of real emotion went. I mean, they would just rip it out of the scripts, and if you were lucky, you got to slip it through. And my script slipped in under the radar, and I found out from David Gerald that the same thing happened with Trouble with Tribbles. Um, it slipped in under the radar, and so did Measure of a Man. Well, the first two seasons, Measure of the Man is really the only one that really stands out as being... Superb. Oh, thank, you. thank you. Well, it's my favorite episode of Star Trek, so. But well, I, you know, with no false modesty, you're not alone. It's been ranked <laughs> yeah, the top no. of all the Star Treks. But, but see, I was in my heart and in my mind, I was trying to write an original Trek. You know, the feel mm-hmm. of original Trek. That was what I was trying to go for. Is that, you know, that sense of exploring what makes us human. What is the best we can be? You know, something, something different. So. Did you ever read? Um, William Shatner's books that he co-authored, I think it was Tech War. No, I never did. Did. It, it was pretty okay. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, you know. It was pretty okay. I, I don't know how much. He wrote. He, yeah. he actually wrote it, but, <coughs> you know. Um, it's not what you think. I mean, you see him being kind of a bit of a buffoon on those ads and stuff. Well, maybe and he really wrote a Maybe he wrote, you know, by, or at least had a good idea of the stories he wanted to tell. He, 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 a few years ago, both uh, Nimoy and Shatner were here, and their panel, you got the affection they had for each other, that all that sniping you see, you know, is is is, is surface it's right it's fake but they both were so intelligent it was real yeah. oh no i mean panel. yeah when i met nimoy too and had that meeting it was with he and john delancey they wanted me to write a play for them mm-hmm. a debate between q and spock mm-hmm. and it happened right after <laughs> i was well I, I and i said no uh sexiest word in hollywood i had just come off of star trek and it was a very difficult experience and i said guys i i appreciate it and you know thank you for thinking of me 
I cannot face track right now, you know. And, and now, of course, many years later, in retrospect, I wish I had done it. I'd written it for them. If you'd like to write it now, I'll read it. <laughs> but I read was it just, this instant. You know, I was just fried. I was just like, oh, God, you know, I can't do any more track right now. But at least I got to have them in and that saying that and that voice. Oh, my God, that voice, <laughs> the most beautiful voice in the world. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you make you make decisions based on. And I wanted to do my best work. I mean, if I was going to do something for them, I didn't want to be burnt out and do a good job <laughs> for them. So, you were going to ask something else. Um, yeah, I actually had two. One, did you feel like you faced any, um, I don't know, pushback being a woman writer for Star Trek? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Please elaborate. <laughs> well, I mean, I was the only woman on the staff. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I went through law school when there weren't a lot of women going through law school. And you learn to, you know, um, butch up ladies, you know, put on your big girl panties and take it. Um, but, you know, so I could push back, too. But it, it was just this constant kind of, and, you know, little things. I mean, sometimes they'd, they'd say something, and if you just, you know, snap back at them, um, you can protect yourself, but you know, it was inevitable. Like, we'd get a script in and it would be crappy, but it has to start shooting in four days. We have to rewrite it. So, what you do is you, you say, okay, we're going to gangbang it. You're going to write the teaser, you write act one, you write act two, you write act three, you write act four, you write act five. Go! You know, here's what we're going to You kind of figure out what you want to do to fix it, and then everybody runs off with an act. And inevitably, I'd go, oh, well, here's this, there's going to be some emotional stuff here in act two, so Melinda's going to write that. That's, you know, I would always get that. And I write really good action. And yet I was always, well, if it's a touchy-feely stop, you know, let Melinda write that. Um, so that, yes, and it's there. It's harder for women to, you know, especially on action shows, you know. it's They always want to push you toward Little House on the Prairie or Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, which I would, you know, sooner die than write. <laughs> um, so, no, that's not. But, yeah, it does exist. And then I, I, you said uh, that a lot of your scripts got changed or things got taken out. I was just wondering, the scene in Measure of a Man between Guinan and Picard at the bar, is that your scene? That's mine. Actually, nobody touched Measure. Um, the only script that was heavily, heavily rewritten was Ensigns of Command. Um, all the rest of them pretty much were left alone. But Ensigns got, Ensigns is the one that got rewritten, so I did a Harlan Ellison, and I put it on my website, my version of it. Mm. Um, and... Uh, but uh, no, all of all of measure is mine. That's all me. And and you know, it was my first script. And there are things I would do differently now. I mean, I had some dumb ba baby beginner mistakes. Like I would have, you know, data ring, and then Picard would say come. And now I know, as a grown-up screenwriter, that I should have just you come in in the middle of the scene. People entering places is boring, <laughs> and it's a waste of screen time. You know, it's 30 seconds of film that you don't need with somebody saying. Come in, may I? Sorry, Captain, uh, disturbed you. May I talk? You know, just get in there and go to the cool. Come in on a line. You know, sometimes I'll even do a line on a cut during the black. You know, I'll have the dialogue over the cut now. But those are things I learned. Um, so there were things. That, yes, if I could do it again, I would do it a little tighter and better. But that's my script. So. Which is my final plea, which is I always tell people, you know, don't, whatever education you get, it's always good. Don't run off to Hollywood at 18 and decide you're, you know, because I could not have written Measure without going to law school. I could not do this new book series I do as Philippa if I didn't have a law degree. Um, and uh, 
you know, the law, if I use it here. I mean, I have, the education is never wasted. Whatever it is you learn, it's going to be, you're going to use it in your writing. And that doesn't mean you should write what you know. I think that's the dumbest piece of advice people give in creative writing workshops. They're always like, write what you know. And it's like, yeah, but I don't know. My life is boring, okay? You know, why would I? And I'm a science fiction writer. I can't write what I know because... I've never know. defended an android. Yeah, and I've never been on a spaceship, and I've never fought aliens. So, you know, what a stupid thing. I just It's one of those creative writing class notes that I think are just like... <laughs> no, you know, write what you dream. Write what you want to read. That's my best advice. If you want to read it, that's what you should write. We were very blessed to have a very small room with only a few people in it. So we basically got to ask her whatever we wanted. And she is just so funny and personable and witty and just amazing. And it was a great experience and definitely one of the highlights of our weekend, I'd say. We learned also that George R. R. Martin calls her snod. Yes. So it's not just a women at warpism. Grace is definitely validated for deciding to call <laughs> Melinda Snodgrass snod. But she also gave Andy a book at the end of the panel, which she signed, and then you, what, you proceeded to read in six hours? Yes. <laughs> are are you going to mock me for being a fast reader again? No, I'm so impressed by it because I can't do that. <laughs> But the thing is, is it's easy to read a book really quickly when it's really good. And it was really good. It's called The Edge of Ruin. Um, she writes she writes a lot of sci-fi books. She's currently, she just released the third in this particular series. It's just basically urban fantasy about, um, basically, it's, it's interesting. It's like established... Uh, organized religion versus science and kind of the war between the two and it's really cool and very thoughtful and I I enjoyed it immensely and I was very honored that she decided to give me that book and sign it for me. You were totally fangirling during that panel. I turned into a puddle of fangirl. I, I kept I couldn't stop giggling. I'm really hoping that the audio we recorded doesn't include all of my giggling and flailing. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I think I almost hit Sue in the face once because I literally was flailing my arms. She, she did stop and, she and say so look at you at one point. I was like, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault. Stop being so awesome and I won't <laughs> flail. <laughs> I just say that's her. I say that's the snod's fault. Okay. She should be less awesome. <laughs> Uh, when we were at the Parsec Awards, we got to see the Double Clicks, which was awesome. And they have a lot of really cool songs about such varied topics as Velociraptors. Well, actually, a lot of their songs are about dinosaurs, to be honest. But mm -hmm. who doesn't need more songs about dinosaurs? I know I do. I know. So please enjoy some nerdy goodness in the form of a Double Click song. had the shiniest of hair and he walked into the room with an authoritative air his carefully shaped eyebrows so severe you could barely even tell where the prosthetics met his ears I fell in love with a Spock impersonator From his ears down to his phaser And his sweet communicator I thought my search for love was at an end 
but being highly logical did not make him a very good boyfriend. When I first saw his furrowed brow, I knew the ideal man had come and found me somehow. I mean, what else could I think? When he looked me in the eye and told me prune juice is a warrior's drink, I fell in love with a wharf impersonator. From his forehead to his baldric and his badge communicator, I thought my search for love was at an end. But being strong and angry did not make him a very good boyfriend. Oh, why did I come to this con? This day has been nothing but a roller coaster of emotion. I don't have the time or money to wait in line to see Leonard Nimoy. But look over there, what an interesting boy. I fell in love with a Q impersonator, which seemed like a bad idea even 30 minutes later. I thought my search for love was at an end. But he transported me to another dimension and played psychological games with me and my friends. You can find more from The Double Clicks at thedoubleclicks.com, and they are super awesome. They definitely made our Parsec Award experience even better. Absolutely. And we've got a few more episodes worth of content from DragonCon coming up in the feed, so be on the lookout for those. It was great sharing some more of our DragonCon goodness with you, but this is just one of the many topics being discussed on the Trek.fm network recently. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And the Slaver Weapon's the only episode of the original with uh, no Kirk in it. No, nope, not there no yet. Spoilers, jeez. Wait, there's no Kirk in that? I, I, no. I didn't even know. I'm going to have to it, check that it out. It completely takes place starting off with the shuttlecraft and only the people that are in the shuttle. Earl Grey. Contraction-free, it's soon's guarantee. <laughs> I've got to get married? No. The Orb. Well, apparently, and did you find this interesting, Matthew? Apparently... The Navark reports directly to the prophets. Which is awkward because they don't always show up for meetings, so... Right. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, you never know what time the meeting is really going to be, right? That is true. It could have been yesterday, and you might have missed it. The Ready Room. Do you think this episode would have been so popular and remain a fan favorite if the Enterprise had been overrun with zebra mussels? <laughs> <laughs> to the journey! It's, it's so average American. It's like Joe Smith. And no offense to Joe Smith, it's just, I could have tried a little harder. I mean, come on. Might as well call her Jane Doe. So far, not off to a good start. So far, I'm judging you, Shark. Give me a moment. Give me a moment. Commentary, Trek stars. He just went into so much research about the details of putting together, like, the historical context of this show that it was really sort of astounding. The 602 Club. The young adult novels have their own um, framing devices that tie in to The Force Awakens. And I think that if they had uh, put those front and center, maybe even expanded one of them uh, or what have you, 
I think that would have served the strategy better. I definitely do. Literary treks. Well, that really is the bottom line, you know, and and I think it's particularly uh, difficult with this group of characters because in some ways you're looking at folks who literally are the brightest and the best, right? So, um, in some ways, we need them not to have feet of clay. We need them to be so much better and stronger than we are so that we have something to shoot for. Women at Warp. There's always a touchstone, and this was as close to a touchstone as they ever got with Pulaski. Plus she banged Riker's dad. (laughs) Oh, Andy. I'm sorry. I just think it's so funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. We also wanted to let you know about the Trek.fm Patreon. Trek.fm is a listener-supported network. You can help us keep the Star Trek discussion coming by pledging a donation at patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm. Every little bit helps keep Women at Warp and the other Trek.fm podcasts up and running. So once you're done with the show, again, please consider hopping over to patreon.com slash trek.fm. You can also check out the Women at Warp Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. And that is actually what we use to make our super cool um, business cards that we handed out to everyone. I'm pretty sure I gave Melinda Snodgrass like 20 of them in my excitement. Um, So thanks very much for everyone who donated. It made it a lot easier to let people know about our podcast while we were at Dragon Con. All right. And that is it for this episode. I'm Sue, and you can find more from me at AnomalyPodcast.com. And I'm Andy. You can find me at First Time Trek on Twitter. And of course, you can get in touch with the show at womenatwarp.com. Bye. Adios. You and I are kind of like Romeo and Juliet. And that I'm romantic and sweet. And you're an immature loser with friends who are unreasonably violent. You and I are kind of like Jim and Pam. Season one. In that I have a job and a boyfriend, and you have a kind of weird thing with Jello. In these stories, we want to know will they or won't they? But with us, I know the answer we won't. In these stories, we want to know will they or won't they? But with us, I know the answer we won't. You and I are kind of like. Spike and Buffy, in that you have a terrible accent, and my house is full of weapons. <laughs> you and I are kind of like Kaylee and Simon, in that I like spaceships and have a really great mind, and your whole darn family is crazy. You and I are kind of like Starbuck and Apollo, in that after all this, this is going to end in an anticlimactic way. You and I are kind of like Starbuck and Apollo And that after all this unresolved sexual tension And emotional investment in time and money This is going to end in an anticlimactic way <laughs> You and I are kind of like Mulder and Scully you're paranoid and even when you're right I look like the smart one you and I are kind of like 
Sansa and Joffrey in that I have a lovely dress on. And you should shut up in these stories we want to know. Will they or won't they? But with us, I know the answer. We won't.